This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 17th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, I ask you this question. What does it take to make a smartphone more durable? Marco Flalo will answer that question. Denis Boudreaux will explain the process of digital accessibility. And in the spirit of Halloween, we've got a horror thoughts on Mr. Harrigan's phone. You'll also hear from Michelle McQuig. Jim Crisco will wrap up the show and is our top story of the day. The public inquiry into the emergency and the city's manager are expected to detail for the commission the efforts they took to peacefully end protests in Ottawa. Watson and members of his staff negotiated with organizers to try and end the protests, but were unsuccessful. High-ranking officers from Ottawa and the Ontario Provincial Police are also expected to testify. The emergency declared on February 14th granted extraordinary temporary powers to police to clear people out of downtown Ottawa and to banks to freeze the accounts of some of those involved. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. In a related story, internal documents show RCMP refused to release the badge numbers of officers who cleared the Freedom Convoy protesters from the Ambassador Bridge last winter. Stephanie Taylor has that element of the story. The situation was outlined in a briefing note to top Mountie Commissioner Brenda Lucky, who was asked to approve the decision because it raised questions around transparency. The document shows that after RCMP helped remove protesters from the bridge in Windsor, it received an access to information request looking for the officers' badge numbers and names. The force immediately raised concerns that releasing such information could lead to officers being threatened or doxxed, which is when someone's personal details are shared online. To illustrate their point, RCMP provided screenshots from the social media app Telegram, which contained messages like, quote, these pigs deserve to die. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And Michelle McQuig and I will discuss the inquiry some more in just a couple of minutes. But let's get to a couple of other news stories. The Canadian military is facing a personnel crisis. Karen Rebo explains. The armed forces has around 10,000 empty positions, which amounts to about 10% of the total ranks. General Wayne Eyre says the staffing shortfall is making it tougher for the military to conduct missions overseas and to respond to events here at home. If we believe that our society is worth defending, this needs to be a whole of society effort to help us bring the armed forces back to where it needs to be for the, the dangerous world ahead. The staffing crisis follows years of lagging recruitment rates, allegations of sexual misconduct involving senior officers, officers and a national labor shortage. Ayer says he's trying to address these issues by overhauling the military's dress code, pushing for more diversity and increasing financial supports and incentives. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Let's turn to an economic story. Loblaws is freezing prices on its no-name products until next year. The freeze will be in place until January the 31st. No-name products are the second most popular consumer brand in Canada. And of course, you may know them from there distinctive yellow packaging. 
Let's switch to a different kind of economic story, an economic investment story, where Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne says Canada can and will be the green supplier of choice for the world's electric vehicle and battery industry. Champagne points out there is still a lot of work to do to encourage international investments on that front. I also realized that, you know, I've spent uh, quite some time abroad myself in business. Say not everyone in the world wakes up thinking about Canada. So you have to really make the case. But once you make it, people understand it. Minister Champagne explains some of the relationships that he's been building with German automakers. So we embarked the journey. We started with the Canadian CEO, and now we had the, the CEO of the Volkswagen Group, which is producing like 30 million cars over days, spending two days with me, and now we're texting each other. That for me is, you know, if you look at the road travel, it's pretty amazing. In the last two years, at least 10 new electric vehicle and battery projects have been announced in Quebec and Ontario, worth more than $15.7 billion. Let's turn abroad to a climate story. A flood emergency continues across parts of Australia's southeast. 34,000 homes are at risk in Victoria. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese laid out the areas of concern. There are 12 areas in New South Wales that are under uh, flood warnings uh, as we speak. In Victoria, uh, towns including Shepparton and Echuca are under real pressure. Albanese gave credit to the many people helping in relief and preparation efforts. People have been magnificent sandbagging as we heard here today. Uh, the efforts of people here in Forbes has made an enormous difference. Uh, but uh, there is further rain expected later uh, this week, so it remains a very dangerous situation. Two people have died from flooding in Australia in the last week. Let's get to our daily polls. You can find us at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook on Friday. We asked you, would you buy a smartphone? Oh, no, no, that's, that's, uh, hold on a second. We got a little copy paste here, error here in the script. No sweat, no problem. Just jump ahead a little bit, Dave. On Friday, we asked you, do you still have a collection of pandemic related supplies, masks and wipes, hand sanitizer, tests, etc.? 97% of you said yes, and 3% of you said no. So you are very well prepared. The daily poll for today at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Would you buy a smartphone that is built to last for 10 years? Yes or no? We'll be talking to Marco Flalo about that a little bit later in the show, early on in the next hour of the show. But I want to get people's vibe on this one because I'll tell you, flat out, straight up, I wouldn't at least without certain conditions being met within the smartphone. Because even if the hardware is built to last for 10 years, okay, cool. Is the software going to work? Can I get high-powered Wi-Fi, high-powered Bluetooth? As these technologies continue to develop and expand, will this phone be future-proof to meet them from a software point of view? What if there's an accessibility tool that I like? I understand that perhaps we've reached an era of smartphone usage where we have enough and good enough of everything, but there's no way in 10 years this phone is going to meet the needs of other software and new software. So how far behind am I going to be if I buy a phone in 2022 that I'm going to be using till 2032? Think about the way in which you may have used your phone or your technology in 2012 versus how it feels today. I assure you, your 2012 phone would not pass muster 
in regards to today's evaluation. Let's bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, I'm sure people can understand the merits of buying a 10-year phone, but would you? Yeah, like I agree with you, Dave. You know, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's, it's great in theory. Okay, you don't have to buy another phone for 10 years, but technology changes so rapidly that even whether it's just the hardware holds up, does the software hold up? Do the apps and, and things you use on the phone, are they going to be compatible for 10 years plus? It's one thing for a company to come out and say, okay, you know, our camera, our 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 storage, our durability can hold up for 10 years. But developers of, of apps and, and other uh, software, they're not beholden to that 10 year cycle. They're gonna keep innovating, keep upgrading using the newest technology available that you're kind of forced to upgrade, even if you have a phone that lasts five, six, seven years with good care, you, you still have to look, it's like, okay, well, if I like this app, if I like this program, if I like this game, my old phone is no longer compatible with it. And we hear about it all the time, especially with, with Apple coming up. Oh, they have this new new innovative accessible feature, but it's only available and, and usable on like these like three generations That's of right. iPhone. That's right. You know, so it's like you you can probably get away with some things for 10 years, but to have full usage of a, a phone that would last a decade, I, I would be very hard pressed to see it. And if there was one, the price would be astronomical because you have to put in all these features that are going to be future proof that are going to hold up 10 years down the road and still be comparable. In fairness, Marco Flalo is going to have some details on a phone called the Fairphone 4, which is sort of the inspiration for this conversation. So he'll be able to tell us a bit more, and I do wonder at what point the phone offers that kind of malleability to add in either new boards or new chips or new other uh, internal components. But even then, that's not saying I've built, I've bought a phone that lasts for 10 years, because if, yeah. if you have to buy the buy the chips and buy the boards and buy the things, yeah. if you still have to buy the hardware, then you're still buying new stuff. Let's bring in and a live... Exactly, exactly. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco for a thought on this one as well. Eliza, smartphone built to last for 10 years, you buying it. So I think I'm actually a little on board with this in a perfect world where things... Ah, uh, yes, the perfect world. <laughs> the perfect world where they figure out these things like, can the software keep up? That's, that is the biggest question for me, but... I don't know, a phone that lasts 10 years, as as we've kind of established, I really, really do not like replacing my technology, hence my very old laptop that's mm -hmm, about to mm -hmm. explode. But ten year, <laughs> a 10-year-old phone, I don't know, like, in my, from my perspective, if you had asked me this, like, five years ago, absolutely not. Like, every time, like, a new iPhone would come out, things would be really different, but... I have an iPhone 10, I believe, and mm -hmm. we're now on an mm -hmm. iPhone 14, and I'm personally not seeing that much of a difference. Right. I think I think that is fair, right? That to a certain degree, that phone continues to hold up relative to a lot of the modern advancements. So I'm I am open to the argument. I am yes. open to the argument, <laughs> but I but I I think there need to be some contingencies on here. I've just been doing the math in my head. I got my first ever smartphone in 2011. Mm. I know I replaced it in probably 2013, late 2013, replaced it again in early 2015, got another one in late 2017, and then got a new one in 2021. So that's five phones that's in just over 11 years or right around 11 years, or I guess we're approaching 12 years uh, soon enough here. So, you know, 
two and a half years. So I'm I'm not quite I'm not quite in the uh, the I need a new one every year. But I do think that when my phone's near their life cycle, I tend to uh, jump off the train. Eliza, thank you for this. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. In the meantime, at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. That's where you find us on Facebook. That's where you vote on the poll. You can find Alex Smythe at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's heavy rain today with rainfall warnings in effect for the area and up to 50 millimeters expected, along with wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour. The high there is 14. Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly sunny and a high of 20. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain late afternoon and 15 is the high. Over to Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with rain expected and a high of 11. Now to Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy and rain expected by noon with a high of 10. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of flurries and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of only 3. To Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny, but the high is only 2. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny with a high of 16. In Calgary, Alberta, sunny as well, and 23 is the high. Over to Edmonton, Alberta, sunny as well, and the high is 20. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of seven. To Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny but becoming hazy in the morning and into the afternoon. And there is also a special weather air quality statement in effect due to the smoke in the area with a high of 17. Victoria, BC, it's mainly sunny and hazy in the afternoon. And there is also the special weather air quality uh, statement in effect due to the smoke. And the high there is 18. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break as part of the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. Michelle McQuig and I will take a look at some of the news related to that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act got underway last week. I do want to play some sound from Thursday's opening remarks. Commissioner Paul Rouleau hopes the whole process will be centered around learning. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. When difficult events occur that impact the lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. Let's bring in Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to dive a bit deeper into this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, I'm going to be playing a couple of different sounds throughout this segment, but I'm curious. We've only really had a couple of days here of hearings, but Mm -hmm. has anything jumped out to you so far in the way in which the inquiries have unfolded? 
Well, uh, there was a very interesting development on Friday in that one of the most sort of compelling witnesses to come forward and really set the tone for the inquiry uh, was a disabled resident, and disability concerns were front and center when she spoke. And it was kind of used as a bit of a microcosm to sum up uh, a number of the other issues that are going to be explored over the course of this inquiry. So I'm sure we'll come back and, and delve more into what got started there, but I, I was very, very interested to hear about that and to watch that development and to sort of see that focus uh, take center stage in a way that it doesn't normally do. In terms of the inquiry itself, it is going to be really interesting. The, the, the witness list is, is 65 people on it, so that's a lot of people to hear from, but it's really diverse and mixed and interesting. So we're going to be hearing a number of different perspectives over the course of this inquiry. And if all of the testimony is as colorful and vivid and arresting as it was on Friday, this is going to be a more uh, engaging situation than most such inquiries that we see, I think. Michelle, it's almost like we planned this. It's almost like we organized <laughs> this in a particular way because let's hear from Victoria de Laurent, who is legally yes. blind. She explained that the honking was taking a toll on her hearing in mental health, and she shared the story of trying to get out of downtown during the protest. I begged a friend, could you just please, I, I know you have to walk in and get me out. Can you... Excuse me. Can you just please come and get me out? And she did. And two days later, I had, we both had COVID. So, Michelle, you mentioned that oftentimes accessibility ends up being an afterthought in the way we talk about these things. But that was something that did bramble up here and there throughout the course of the protest in terms of the way the landscape was being set, the way it was impacting people. People with mobility challenges, people who may have been blind or low vision, were not able to either get supplies, get out, get public transit. That was one of the things that the, the picture was painted last Friday of what it was like in the downtown core for, for a couple of weeks from a people perspective. Exactly right. And, and Victoria Delaron's story was particularly compelling because she talked not only about the immediate impacts of living through that as a disabled woman, uh, she, she talked about the difficulty in hearing her way through downtown. She was trying to navigate as a legally blind person. That's something that really, really resonated with me. I struggle with construction noise in my neighborhood, never mind the sounds of big rigs. We've, uh, we've, noticed, asked, we've noticed that turn the news panel here and there, here and now and again. Yeah, oh, oh. <laughs> my apologies. No, that's, that, was uh, not, that was not Such is life in my neighborhood. No, no truly, though. Dig. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's honestly such is life in my neighborhood. It's constant. Anyway, but uh, the other element that made Victoria de la Ronde a really powerful witness, I think, on Friday is because she talked about the longer-term effects of it as well, and that included for her increased hearing loss, which is a, a very serious outcome, of course. There was some evidence showing that decibel levels outside the area where she lived reached 90 to even 100 decibels. And this went on around the clock for weeks. So uh, they really were able to find a witness who encapsulated so many of the human tolls of this, this convoy and the lasting effects of it for some. Michelle, you mentioned that that personal impact. One of the other pieces of compelling testimony on Friday came from a civil servant, Zexi Lee, who actually filed a court injunction to stop the horn honking. She also described her experience living in the downtown core during the protest. That's really, the right. first thing you notice when you stepped outside was all of the snow because services were unable to be rendered due to the occupation that was going on. And further to that, the snow was often colored yellow or brown due to the public urination and defecation that took place gratuitously. 
Michelle, that was really last Friday, but it feels like this week we're going to be getting more into some of the legal framework stuff based on the witness list of those who are going to be coming by over the course of this week and next week. That's right. But for those who like a little side of drama with their inquiry testimony, uh, we might be getting some of that too. The, the next set of witnesses that are going to be up are people largely from the city of Ottawa, but quite high up in that, as well as from people who were involved with the Ottawa Police Services Board. Now, you might remember that the Ottawa Police became quite the uh, source of action on, on in their own right mm-hmm. during, the, during the convoy. There was a lot of critiques coming their way about lack of action. At one point, the chief of police actually stepped down because of the convoy response and in the middle of the convoys while they were still ongoing. And it was a different interim police chief who oversaw the the removal of the protesters when that actually did take place. So we're going to be hearing a, a bit from uh, Ottawa's mayor, Jim Watson. He will no longer be Ottawa's mayor as of next week, but he is still now and he was during the convoy. So he'll be speaking. So will his chief of staff. The Ottawa city manager is expected to speak this week. Um, but we are also going to be hearing from a councillor who uh, reportedly had a certain amount of strife over the mayor and who was voted to be removed as the head of the Ottawa Police Services Board during the convoy because of all of this. Um, we are going to be starting to hear from police officers themselves. So um, a lot of wrangling and a lot of uh, tension existed between city and police officials and, and the various players that got roped mm-hmm. into the situation as it evolved. So we're going to be here bringing about a lot of that back and forth in the days to come. There's certainly a logic in the way this has been laid out. So you people, it seems like uh, Commissioner Paul Rulo definitely has a strong concept of what he's trying to do here. Last Friday, telling those personal stories over the course of the next couple of days, hearing from people in Ottawa, the, the city police, city officials, because fundamentally the point of this inquiry is to decide why it came to the point of declaring the use of this act and also decide prescriptively when is this is when this is appropriate to be used again in the future so the way they're doing this makes a lot of sense set the stage explain the conflict see what was going on at the city level as you start moving more towards bringing in federal figures absolutely and and it's worth noting too that there is going to be an element of circling back because one of his professed objectives on this is to talk about the aim and the scope of the protests themselves and so protesters and protest organizers are also on the witness list it is going to be a, a, i think a pretty broad uh, spectrum look at what happened there and I, I think it's going to make for some very interesting coverage in in the coming weeks Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i'll be playing uh, as many clips as i can over the course of the uh, next couple weeks as as it's continuing again it's public inquiry so so long as there's clips available for me to play i will continue to try to share the highlights with folks as we move along and i know your colleagues are working hard probably in the press gallery every day I was just going to say, any sound we can provide to the the clients like you and good listeners like you uh, the more we will do Michelle, the one other thing that I found out this weekend, as you and I both got to spend some time with one of our old journalist colleagues in the Ottawa neck of the woods, Kevin, is that there's going to be a people's inquiry going on simultaneously with this. It's not going to be going on to the same scale, but they've already done one particular uh, event where they talked about some of the accessibility concerns downtown. And basically once a week or once every couple of weeks, there's going to be a people's inquiry where they're going to be talking about what the actual impact was on the neighborhood. I must have missed that conversation because that's very cool and very interesting, but uh, something that we'll uh, try to bring more coverage of mm. and, and, and exposure to because that is a really interesting side development for sure. It was somewhere between my third and fourth tequila soda that uh, Kevin Kevin revealed that to me. So who knows? In that case, I commend your once. memory, Mr. Brown. Nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michelle, thank you for this. We'll talk to you on Friday for the news panel.
<laughs> Sounds great. Have a good week, everybody. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up next, we'll talk about digital accessibility. We'll talk about how it happens. Denis Boudreau will explain the process of digital accessibility and inclusion. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minutes. Losses in the energy and base metals sectors on Friday dragged Canada's main stock index down and Wall Street well, they saw an even sharper decline. Toronto's S&P TSX losing 287 points, closing at 18,326. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 404 points, down to 29,635. The Nasdaq, it fell 328 points, down to 10,321. Over onto the Asian markets this morning, Japan's Nikkei finished down 315 points at 26,776. As for the Hang Seng ahead of closing, it was down around 60 points. Opening arguments are expected today in an Ontario court in a case against three former leaders with CanTrust Holdings accused of securities offences. And finally, the Looney is trading overseas this morning at 72.32 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Even in a polarized world, there are certain things we can agree upon as things that we want. A cold glass of water on a warm day. A peaceful night's sleep. How about this? A more accessible and inclusive digital world. We want it. But how do we get there? Well, much like anything, there's a process. Let's learn more and lean on the expertise of Denis Boudreau. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Hey, good morning, Denis. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Denis, let's start here. An organization wants to make their offerings more inclusive. Maybe they assign one point person or a small team. What are the pitfalls of that strategy? Well, a very big pit pitfall would be that if you assign one person to create accessible content for your entire team or organization, then a lot of other people are going to think that it's not their problem anymore or that they're not even accountable for anything. So the likelihood of someone sort of fighting against everybody else who have other priorities might become one of the really big challenges that that person would, would face. We, we see that all the time in organizations that are trying to create accessible digital spaces for their, their clients, their customers, their prospects. Um, so yeah, so the biggest challenge is probably having to fight against inertia from everybody else who either doesn't really get why we're doing this or don't feel like it's their job because they were not appointed to that particular responsibility. So there are better strategies. How does a company make the process smoother? Well, one of the ways to do that for sure would be to make sure that everyone is on board with the fact that it is everybody's responsibility. If you, uh, regardless of the role that you play, you are going to have an impact on how accessible your content is gonna be ultimately. Let's say for instance, you're thinking about people on your team who are content creators. If you are uh, tasked with creating that content, for instance, your responsibilities would be very different than say somebody else who's tasked with designing the assets that are gonna be presented with that content. So one person might be really focused on 
does our is our content easily understandable by people? Is it are are the fonts legible? Um, are the colors being uh, used being being sufficiently contrasted? Like all those different things should never be the responsibility of one person, but rather the responsibility of a multiple multitude of people who work together towards a common outcome. Same thing is true if you're thinking about a developer, for instance, if someone has worked on creating copy and then someone else has worked on creating design assets for that stuff, at some point someone will need to put everything together on your website, say. So the responsibilities of that person, again, will be very different than those who came before creating the assets themselves. Now someone has to put them together in an accessible format. So the weight for an organization to really make sure that they are successful with creating accessible content is really that everyone on the team has a role to play and it really becomes a team effort towards more inclusion. So here's where my ignorance kicks in. And even though I'm ignorant on this, I do understand there's probably variables from company to company or project to project. But how many departments might actually get involved in a more cross-organizational approach? Well, I'd say most uh, departments would get involved at some point or another. I mean, if we go back to what I was saying about the different roles, for instance, you know, people in marketing might have a particular perspective on how do we create more inclusive messaging, for instance, while everyone who works with the design uh, department might be more conscious about, you know, the colors that we use, that sort of thing. So, and, and it's not only the people that are actually contributing to the content, it's also the people who empower those folks to be able to do their job successfully. So I'm thinking, you know, your leadership in your organization needs to be on board and needs to give you the space so that you can do these things. You have project managers that are going to be able to allow you or enable you to do this work by assigning you the appropriate amount of time or giving you the proper resources so that you can be successful in doing those things. If you're, you're, if you're going even further than that, I mean, in an organization that would be very conscious about wanting to create accessible content again, I mean, it might be their legal team who have to become more familiar with you know, the risks of not actually doing so. You might have people in procurement who are more concerned with you know, finding the proper tools so that you know, the, the software that we use internally, for instance, is also usable by our, uh, our employees who, who would have those disabilities and therefore create an environment where they would also be more uh, capable of doing their job uh, autonomously. So everyone has a role to play, as I was saying earlier. Denis, I'm, I'm someone who can struggle with delegation. People who work with me behind the scenes on this show would definitely attest to that because I'm always paranoid about something slipping through the cracks or wanting something done the way that I like it. If you take this approach that works across an organization, is there a possibility of something breaking down? Or if I can answer my own question, does that actually help better identify when the process does hit a roadblock? Uh, it, it certainly could. Um, I mean, if, if you, I mean, everything goes down, comes down to having a solid process, right? So uh, one of the ways to do that, for instance, is, be, is being really clear as to what are the expectations in terms of the work that needs to be done. So if we go back to creating accessible content, let's say you want to put out a couple of, of, uh, of PDF documents, say, um, or, or HTML pages, web pages that speak to a particular topic, um, having everyone on your team being clear about what their responsibilities are, are and how those responsibilities sort of work with the other team members who also have the same responsibilities, that is a good way to make sure that you're not going to miss, uh, you know, the obvious uh, issues that, or, 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 or tasks that could become issues if they are not being handled. And, and 
you know, similarly, if you don't have that process, if what you're trying to do is say, okay, so we think we understand what this accessibility thing is about, let's just do this, this, and this, and then let's let's just send it out there or, or publish it, then of course the likelihood of you hitting a roadblock and, and some people you know, complaining because, and rightfully so, complaining because they can't use that content or the content is more difficult for them to use is higher, which triggers all these other things that we'd rather not hear about as an organization, such as complaints from other people, bad, rep, bad, uh, you know, uh, comments on social media, that sort of thing. Yeah, the bad comments on social media come. I definitely went after a major app uh, last week when their redesign absolutely was not workable for me at all. Uh, no need to rehash it because I mentioned them by name last week, and I'm sure their lawyers' ears are already perked up. So we'll leave it there. But Denis, I'm curious about this approach. Coming back to the cross-department development approach, would you say it's becoming more common? I, I think so. I mean, I mean, like I've said probably 15 times on your show already, I'm, I'm quite the optimistic. So I like to think that things get better year after year. I mean, there's so many people that work really that work really hard to make this world a more accessible place. So I like to think that you know overall we're gaining ground every year. So yeah, in that sense, I do believe that organizations are also getting smarter when it comes to approaching accessibility. I still meet organizations on a weekly basis who don't really know what this is about, even though it's been around for over 20 years now. Guidelines and, and other uh, regulations have been around for a long time. But, but I see more and more organizations who are maybe not completely, maybe they haven't completely figured out what the process needs to be, but they understand that it's more than just assigning one person to that role, as you've, as you've mentioned at the beginning of our, of our segment together. So I see less and less organizations who are just saying, hey, you, you're now our accessibility champion. You are responsible for making sure that you know, the other 500 people in the company are doing what they are supposed to do. And instead, that person becomes sometimes or oftentimes becomes a bit of a lead for a lot of other uh, accessibility people that are also going to pay attention to that particular aspect, but in their own roles or or, or their own sets of responsibilities. Mm. And then that person becomes more of a guide, a sh like a shepherd, if you will. And then they um, together, they can, they can have a lot more impact on the organization because it's not only one person saying we need to do this, it's leads in all those different departments, for instance, who are paying attention to accessibility and looking at their own team, which of course creates a multiplying effect in terms of uh, in terms of inclusion. So this is something we see more and more. It definitely has a great impact. And then there are these other resources that are starting to come out out there, uh, especially when it comes to to you know the, the development lifecycle. So any anybody who's involved in you know creating, designing, developing, implementing quality testing content before it goes online, for instance, we see more and more of those resources out there that are helping people understand where they need to begin or what their role actually is. So, uh, so it's, it's, um, it's encouraging in that way for sure. Um, to see that a lot of organizations that come to me, that come to my clients are, uh, are typically, you know, a little bit more aware now and, and understand that there's going to be more to this than just saying, we're going to spend the next two weeks or, or, or two months uh, working on making this accessible and we won't have to think about it ever again. People are starting to understand that just like security or privacy or other important aspects like this, accessibility needs to be something that we take seriously and that we nurture over the course of our life cycles, however long they may be. Denis, we're always a little bit smarter after we get your perspective on these issues. Thank you for making time for us as always. 
Thank you very much. Have a good day. That's Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Coming up next in the spirit of Halloween, we've got a horror film review. Amy Mantia's thoughts on Mr. Harrigan's phone. Notice I always say horror in a very particular way because I'm trying to avoid saying a different word that would be monosyllabic, which uh, might get me canceled. But before we get to Amy Amanti, Microsoft is taking on MacBook with one of its new laptops. Derek Dennis draws the battle lines in Tech Trends. The new Surface Laptop 5 may look the same as last year's model, but PC World Senior Editor Mark Hockman says that's not necessarily a bad thing. It definitely carries with it sort of a MacBook appeal. It's aesthetically pretty, it's nice to use, it has great keyboard, great monitor. And like the MacBook, Microsoft is aiming the laptop at a wide range of consumers. The Surface Laptop 5 is what Microsoft has aimed at the mainstream consumer. It's the do-everything notebook for everyone. But he says it enters a PC market that's more competitive than it was even a few years ago. Stronger competition from everyone from Dell to Lenovo. The device also drops last year's option for an AMD Ryzen processor. Intel is the only choice in the Laptop 5. Pricing starts at 1000 bucks. Key there, though, is that Microsoft has not increased the price from the previous generation. With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Halloween is around the corner. The countdown is on. Two weeks till Halloween, so it's time to get into the spirit of spooky season. As a result, let's bring in Amy Amanti for a review of the Netflix film, Mr. Harrigan's Phone. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, it's an American teen horror drama that was released on Netflix. What's it about? Well, uh, this is kind of apropos considering, well, one, Halloween is right around the corner. Yeah. But two, you have a question about iPhones, well, about smartphones today. <laughs> so this kind of aligns nicely. So this is, a, of course, a Netflix film. Uh, Mr. Har- Harrington's phone, Harrington's phone is um, about a young boy named Craig. And Craig befriends a much older billionaire within his small Ooh. community. I know, right? Like, how, how often do we get to do that? So um, uh, they become really good friends. He he's, uh, uh, goes over weekly and reads books because uh, this uh, gent is quite a, a literary collector. Anyways, um, in the process of that, they become really good friends. Um, but as the gentleman gets older and the young boy grows into a teenager, the teenager introduces him to an iPhone to sort of open his world. And uh, unfortunately, he passes away. And it's not a spoiler. It's part of the show. When uh, when Craig is grieving, he starts uh, texting the phone that he left in the breast pocket uh, within the ca- the casket, right? And all of a sudden, the text messages are returned. Oh, oh, oh my, oh my. Okay, all right. Consider me uh, adequately creeped out already. I can already tell <laughs> I'm probably not going to watch this. Um, who's in the cast? Because what's interesting about Stephen King movies, this is based on a Stephen King novella, is sometimes the casts are star-studded. And sometimes they're nobodies. So who makes up this cast? Yeah, absolutely. So this is based on like a collection that Stephen King has written called uh, "If It If It Bleeds." If anybody is interested, um, 
So, uh, who's in the cast? Well, we have playing our billionaire, Donald Sutherland. Okay. Big fan. I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of Donald Sutherland. Really, really enjoy his work. Uh, but they really made him very old and very chromogeny. Well, he's, um, uh, Donald Sutherland's already pretty so pretty old. So, yeah, I didn't yeah. have to make him that old. No, but it, it is... <laughs> It is quite boggling how much older he appears in this particular film. Um, and then we've got Jaden Martell, who plays our our um, young, uh, who plays Craig. Now, Craig, this is what's interesting to me because Craig, uh, Jaden, was also cast in the recent release, the 2017 release of Stephen King's It, and then recast in the 2019 sequel of It. So he is already... Um, known to Stephen King, who helped um, executive produce this piece. Uh, so the casting seemed like it was very familiar, right? And sometimes we see this, I don't remember this, like in uh, American Horror Story, the, the, the series, mm-hmm. you know, they recast the same folks over and yes. over as different yes. characters. So this kind of feels a little resonant to that. Sometimes you like to work with folks over and over. So I'm going to say those are the two sort of uh, names to watch out for in this particular film. And without giving away too much here, because again, mm. when it comes to horror movies and thriller movies, sometimes you don't want to be giving away too, too much. Did you find there were a couple, uh, let's call them jump scares or shocks or twists and turns that had you on the edge of your seats? You know, I didn't. Um, there is something of a sweet and gentle nature to this film. So you, it doesn't actually appear like a horror movie, just like if we remember, and it, it kind of boggled my mind a little bit years ago when I learned that The Green Mile mm-hmm. was a Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. But there isn't anything that's truly scary in that particular movie, right? Well, it's just I don't know when they when they oh, come uh, on. when when they electric chair the one guy without wetting his without wetting his head and he oh, burns okay. to death in front of the people. That was pretty alarming. Yeah, I know. But when I think about Stephen King, I think about like paranormal stuff or you know dogs that eat you alive you know that oh, kind of Cujo. thing yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah 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 pet cemetery Cujo, Carrie, that kind of stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so if that's what you're looking for you're not going to find that in this particular film you know the the stuff that they do with the iphone kind of gets glossed over pretty quickly and they move on to the next thing you may have given it away a little bit here in your last answer amy but are you a fan of stephen king's work or at least the work that tends to get adapted into movies because i think people might not understand that he's had over 30 of his novels or 30 of his works turned into movies yeah, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies. Again, in a trivia game once, I learned that Stephen King wrote The Shawshank mm-hmm, Redemption. I was mm-hmm. like, what? You know, because if it's a movie like The Langoliers or Cujo or like, it's like, yeah, not really a fan of those kind of cheesy, even it. I just it was like, yeah, it's not, that didn't really do it for me. But The Green Mile was lovely. And uh, um, uh, The Shawshank Redemption was lovely. And this movie was lovely. So there, it's kind of a different type of work that Stephen King does. A little bit, you know, there's some little bit, um, uh, you can't even really call it a horror genre, right? It's like a horror that you can watch with young kids because it's not scary. Um, but there's a little element of it there. The Shawshank Redemption to this day, one of the best movies ever made. Point like period, Absolutely point agree. finale. It, the, 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 the relationship between Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman oh. as the movie goes along is just a beautiful relationship. But you also just get so many great performances and side characters. It's a beautifully drawn out story. The Shawshank Redemption is just like that. That's an ultimate go-to piece of cinema that's going to stand the test of time, whether it was made in the early 90s and whether it gets played 
played on cable today relentlessly. It's the kind of movie that when it gets popped on, you're always going to watch it. Amy, 100% agree. I, I am also a big fan of a lot of the work that gets turned into uh, movies or uh, TV shows that Stephen King has done. You mentioned The Green Mile. I was a huge, huge fan. You mentioned Shawshank mm-hmm. Redemption. I'm a huge, huge fan. There was one that was made in the mid to late 80s called Misery that starred yes. Kathy Bates and Robert Duvall. It is such a powerful and scary movie, but not scary in the sense of, oh, there's a monster in the closet. No, the monster is Kathy Bates. And Kathy Bates turns in one of the best acting performances ever in Misery. It's incredible. Yeah, it absolutely is. This is... This is the, there's a, obviously a power dynamic in that movie, um, which is interesting to us, but it's, it's the, it's the, um, the obsessed fan, right? The obsessed fan and the extremes that the obsessed fan, obsessed fan will go to, which for me, I like those kind of humanistic horrors, right? There's no ghosts in the closet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's Skeletons, re- maybe. It's real stuff. <laughs> you know, even, even a movie like Carrie, for example, it's it's there is a supernatural element like there's there's no denying a supernatural element works its way into that movie but the fact is the story is very human it's about a young woman who gets bullied mm-hmm. absolutely yeah uh coming of age stories too things like it's i really liked the 2017 uh it part one that they made it part two that followed it in 2019 not not quite as good it, kind of, it lost some of the charm <laughs> but i think that's also part of the it story in general because even the tv movie that was made in the 90s the part one was excellent and part two was kind of like no we don't really need the clown again like you already kind of figured it out so it is it is interesting that that sometimes with stephen king it can be very hit or miss if you go down the list of the over 30 movies that have been turned uh, books that have been turned into movies you're like that was a bad one. That was a bad one. That was a yeah. bad one. That was a bad one. Oh, greatest movie of all time. That was a bad one. That was a bad one. That was a bad one. So it can be there can be a lot of hit or miss in the work that Stephen King does just because he's written so many stories. I know. There's such a such a nuance, such a variety to his work that um I really had pegged him as one type of writer and then, you know, as I grew um and was exposed to other movies that that had been adapted from books, I was like, "Oh, I can't believe this is a Stephen King because I thought I didn't like Stephen King. Yeah, there's kind of a sleeper hit in his collection of works from the mid-2000s, a movie called The Mist. It's Mm, very, very good, but it is very, very scary. I think if I had to watch that for the first time today, I wouldn't be able to. But back then, Dave was much tougher. The 2006 Dave was a tough young man. Uh, 2022 Dave is uh, aging and terrified of everything. Well, so that you're telling me if we were sitting on a couch together watching movie eating popcorns, you'd have to keep your eyes closed, and I'd be the one who's saying it's okay, Dave. Kind of, it's okay, this kind of. Scary. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've become someone who struggles with these things a little bit. I'll sometimes muster up the nerve, but uh, sometimes they stick with me. When I saw the remake of The Evil Dead in 2013, that was pretty much it for me. There was one scene in there that stuck with me for days that I was like, oh, now I can't sleep properly. So yeah, I've, I've, I've become soft in my old age. Uh, Amy, speaking of me keeping my eyes closed and you telling me what's on screen. How was the description in this particular in this particular movie? What a master segue from a uh, experienced broadcaster, Dave. Um, I'll tell you that uh, the vi- so this is the thing about movies in general, not just Stephen King movies, but often there are these sort of visual aesthetics that happen. Uh, that's part of the storytelling. So they're like clips of things that are being shown, and they're going to sh- show up later. And these aren't scary things, but like you know, clips of 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 the character. It's just a hand, so you don't know who the character is strumming through, you know, swiping on an iPhone, 
just you know and then then a like clip of like legs running through the forest and then and you're like how am i supposed to put all of these pieces together because you don't it's a visual aesthetic that's part of the film and then they appear later as as a larger piece of the story um but they're so hard to describe because you can't put those within any context because mm -hmm. there's usually some mm -hmm. kind of dialogue or even a, a narration that's happening over top of these so it's really i kind of call it visual filler but it is that it's an aesthetic and so that was very difficult to you know like what what why am i being told that somebody's swiping through an iphone and their legs are running through a forest and how do i put those pieces together so for me that was that was a difficulty to try and wrap my brain around even though i know that there's this concept that exists and i think for me i probably would have appreciated something like in a visual montage then they tell me what's going on then i'm mm, like oh, okay this mm. is one of those aesthetic things we've you know i don't have to pay that much attention to it um, so that's, I mean, that was for me the, the sort of the rub about the audio description. Yeah, that's very fair. That's very fair rub. I like that rub. Amy, how would you overall rate the film? How would you overall rate Mr. Harrigan's phone? Oh, I gave it an eight and a half out of 10. I actually quite enjoyed it. I might watch it again. There's the, the sweetness of it with the juxtaposition of this slightly creepiness. Um, I was like, was really, it was really sweet to me. It's like, uh, I don't know. What is it that Elf does? Put maple syrup on top of his uh, <laughs> on top of his spaghetti. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of like that. Uh, Amy, I know we're not chatting with you next week for a film review, but on the thirty first, are we getting another horror film review? Or are you moving on? Oh no! I think we're going to get something that's uh, realistically creepy in a new series that's on Netflix. Oh, are we talking Jeffrey Dahmer? We are. Oh indeed my talking gosh, Jeffrey we've got Dahmer. you back on the serial killer beat. Fun times. Uh, Amy, thank you for this. You got it, Dave. <laughs> That's Amy Amanti, a film reviewer for us in Vancouver, also the host of Accessing Art with Amy, which you can find on your favorite podcasting platforms. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. The federal government has sent armored vehicles and other supplies to support police in Haiti. Don Kelly explains. Royal Canadian Air Force and U.S. military aircraft flew to Port-au-Prince yesterday to deliver security equipment purchased by the Haitian government. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, Defence Minister Anita Annan and their American counterparts say the equipment included tactical and armoured vehicles. The supplies are intended to help Haitian police fight violent gangs who are disrupting the flow of critically needed humanitarian aid intended to try to halt the spread of cholera. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. You just heard Don Kelly mention cholera. Dave Packer has more on the cholera outbreak impacting Haiti. Amid hunger, jobs and deadly gangs, now Haiti experiencing a cholera outbreak in the capital Port-au-Prince in Sight-Soleil. Medical tents handling the overflow. Alexandre Marco with Doctors Without Borders. We receive around 40 patients every day since the beginning of the cholera resurgence. And um, in total, we might have received uh, 200 patients. Haiti was cholera-free till 2010 when infected sewage from U.N. peacekeepers thereafter the 2010 earthquake leaked into a river. Dave Packer, ABC News. Let's go overseas where there is some drama in the halls of British Parliament. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has only been in office for six weeks, but her economic policies have come under scrutiny. Conservative lawmaker Robert Halton says the British government is reckless in its handling of Britain's economy. I worry that over the past few weeks, the government has looked like uh, libertarian jihadists and, and treated the whole country as uh, kind of laboratory mice in which to carry out kind of ultra, ultra free market experiments. UK's 
Financial Secretary to the Treasury, Andrew Griffith, says it's essential politicians stop bickering and get behind the Prime Minister for the sake of the country. This is a time when we need stability. I don't think anybody uh, would say that um, what the, the, the country needs right now is either more change uh, inside the Westminster bubble, nor a Labour government that will actually come forward and give more rights to the striking workers that are a, a real break on people's ability to go to work, nationalising energy companies, or as Mayor Khan says, taking us back into Europe. Truss has appointed Jeremy Hunt as the new Treasury Chief. Hunt plans to rip up much of her economic plan when he makes a budget statement on October the 31st. And there's currently a live stream going on right now where there's a head of lettuce next to the picture of Liz Truss. And uh, they're going to see whether or not the head of lettuce will remain intact and unspoiled before the end of Truss's prime ministry. The internet's a fun place. Coming up after the break, we get the sports chat with Brock Richardson and the regional news update with me. That's This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October the 17th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, what does it take to make a smartphone more durable? Mark Aflala will address that question. And Calgary is receiving some federal funding for inclusive infrastructure upgrades. Jim Crisco will be here with the lowdown on that story. But let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Significance of his win. 135 years after the first Chinese head tax was paid just for the right to come here and work on building a railway, Vancouver has elected... Brenda Locke has been elected as the mayor of Surrey, B.C. Locke says she wants to scrap the municipal police force in the city. But the first things are first. How about, first of all, we need to keep the Surrey RCMP right here in Surrey. Officers serving in Surrey's current municipal police force will continue to perform their duties despite comments by the new mayor. Surrey Police Service spokesman Ian McDonald says the city will continue to build the new force and leave any decisions about its future to the provincial government. We are going to continue to connect with the community. We're going to continue responding to those 911 calls. And most importantly, we're going to continue building up SPS. Um, the jurisdiction, ultimately, in, in terms of determining um, how police services operate in the province of British Columbia is in fact the province. Let's move over to the prairies, where the federal and Manitoba governments will contribute more than $33 million for the construction of a Métis National Heritage Centre at the intersection of Portage and Maine in Winnipeg. The Manitoba Métis Federation and BMO announced in 2020 an agreement for the sale of the bank's historic building at the corner of the centre. Federation President David Chartrand says the centre will teach visitors about how the Red River Métis were instrumental in bringing the West into Canada over 150 years ago. Over to Ontario, where the Ford government will be back at the bargaining table with Ontario education workers today in the hopes of avoiding a potential strike. Mediator William Kaplan will present will be present to help negotiate a new collective agreement between the two sides, as he did in 2019. The union is asking for an annual wage increase of $3.00 
and 25 cents per hour. Other demands include designated early childhood educators for every kindergarten class and $100 million towards the creation of new jobs. The Ford government is proposing a four-year deal that involves raises of 2% a year for education workers who make less than $40,000 and 1.25% for everyone outside that bracket. And then finishing in Atlantic Canada, one of eight workers injured in last month's explosion at a refinery in Come By Chance, Newfoundland, has died. Brenda Molina Navidad has the details. Refinery owner Brea Renewables confirmed the death after a union representing steel workers at the facility posted a tribute on Facebook to their member Sean Peddle. The post says Peddle died in hospital after fighting for his life for the past six weeks. One person remains in hospital and six others have returned home. The cause of the September 2nd explosion and subsequent fire at the refinery is being investigated by police and the province's Occupational Health and Safety Division. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Brenda. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, let's begin over in Denmark. You have the final update on how Canada's men's wheelchair rugby team fared. Yes, I do. So they uh, fared... Uh, they finished in fifth place. They had a heartbreaking loss against our arch rivals, the United States. Uh, the United States squeaking one out, uh, 53-51, which was an unfortunate uh, loss in that regard, which meant that they had to go into the hardest games that I would say uh, to play, and that's the placing games where you, you know, play for you know the place you're going to be in and those ones are hard to get up for but they they played uh, both New Zealand and France and beating both of those nations which meant that they finished in fifth place and I don't know how to categorize this as a result I think that with the uh, veterans that are on this team I think that there was an expectation to be on the podium lots of uh, Paralympic exposure on this team uh, leadership's uh, are are there for uh, Zach Modell and he, I I just think that you know they should have probably hoped to be on the podium but I think if you can say well we finished uh, fifth at a world championship that is something that you can hang your hat on and say we did uh, well which starts them off in this uh, middle of the quadrennial uh, in a good place because the higher you finish at world championships the higher you finish overall for the Paralympic Games moving forward so I don't think all is lost here, but I think if you asked an athlete, they wanted to be on the podium, as you would get with most athletes um, coming from an event like this. 2024, that's what we're working towards now, right, for the next Summer Olympics? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So that. So yeah. We're right. We're right there. We're right smack in the middle, and it's time to get down to business. No doubt about that one. People are getting down to business in the world of football, Brock. You on Friday were very geared up, as was most of the football world, for the Buffalo Bills and Kansas City Chiefs. Buffalo pulls out the win in that one. What was your impression of that game? My impression was exactly uh, what I expected. It it came down to the uh, wire. I think one of the things that uh, Tony Romo said was that, uh, barring any kind of disaster uh, that would take place, this game could could mean home field in, in the AFC, uh, which is important. I, I think that both uh, Buffalo and Kansas City will be in the mix and the top two teams again like they were 
last year, which mean which means that or not last year, sorry, one of them was a bit lower than the other. But in years past, uh, they've been at the top. And uh, I just think that that's what you're going to expect. Um, both of these quarterbacks are in the primes of their career. They've got pieces around each of the quarterbacks that you think are going to be here long term. And so this is a battle that you're going to get used to. And I do think they're in a collision course to meet each other again in the playoffs this coming year, which I am looking forward to. The one takeaway I take out of this game beyond sort of the superstar power was that Buffalo's running game was going early and it was going often. Devin Singletary played really well yesterday, put some good stats on the board. Buffalo has a committee back there playing running back for them, but it seems in recent weeks that Devin Singletary appears to be the guy. That's going to be something that come playoff time, whether that home game is in Buffalo and Orchard Park or whether that game is in Kansas City, this AFC championship is going to be going through somewhere that's going to be cold and having a running game that works is going to be a huge part of it. So the fact is that Buffalo has their running game going along with their star quarterback, Josh Allen, along with their star, their star wide receiver, Stefan Diggs is going to mean a lot for this team. Yesterday is a huge confidence boost for the bills. No doubt about it. 100%. The thing is, and we talked about this a little bit on Friday. I, I think that this win means something for Buffalo, but it's not the end-all, be-all. I see where, you know, Tony Romo's coming from. Uh, Buffalo won last year's season matchup. Uh, That didn't uh, mean home field for them uh, still. Um, Again, there's a long way to go in the season, but it is a good sort of stepping stone. They do need to take out the giant in the AFC that, that seems to be Kansas City. I think the struggle... Last season was that running game uh, that you were talking about. And I do expect Kansas City to make an adjustment. What that is, I'm not sure, because Buffalo's running game is is better this year than it was last. But they are going to make the adjustment, and it will be very, very fascinating to see uh, what takes place there. Brock, much like how nobody cares about our fantasy teams, nobody cares about the parlay bets that I make on the money line before the Sunday games kick off. However, however... Yesterday's strategy by me was to bet on overwhelming favorites and parlay them together to try and maximize my winnings. The three teams that I bet on, the Green Bay Packers, the Baltimore Ravens, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, guess what? (laughs) The Jets upset Green Bay, the Giants upset Baltimore, and Pittsburgh upset Tampa Bay. It was a costly Sunday for me, Brock. $8 out the door, just like that, disappearing into thin air. I have thoughts about all these games, but which one of these results was most surprising to you? Um, I, listen, this is the reason why I no longer, you know, bet on the money line because I would do the very same thing and you'd think to yourself, oh, this is a foregone conclusion. And then the foregone conclusion, you're like, oh yeah, but they still have to play the game and it's not on paper. I think the, the, the most surprising one for me is the Jets, uh, defeating Green Bay. I, I just, that one kind of goes, you kind of go, huh? And I think the one the one sort of thing that surprises me is the score. It wasn't just like a, um, you know, a one score situation. They trounced mm-hmm. them 27-10. And, it, and, you know, I don't think a lot of people expected that. I, I have not been in the camp of uh, Rodgers much this year. I think that there's more going on there than than meets the eye but for me that's the 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 biggest one obviously tampa bay um uh, losing their game as well 
that's a surprise. But again, that's the tighter one where you kind of think, okay, one score can kind of go one way or the other. But for me, the outlier is the 27-10 victory by the Jets. So, Brock, I'm going to say the Tampa Bay-Pittsburgh game is the one that stuns me the most because Tampa Bay went into the season with legitimate Super Bowl expectations, even with a 46-year-old quarterback, even with losing their head coach during the offseason, even with injuries at the wide receiver position. This Tampa Bay team is supposed to be elite, elite defensively, elite offensively. They are supposed to be a prime contender to win the NFC and represent them in the Super Bowl this performance yesterday against a rookie quarterback who was eventually knocked out of the game to then be replaced by a journeyman quarterback throwing the ball to rookie wide receivers. And and admittedly, Pittsburgh does have some good wide receivers in Chase Claypool and Deontay Johnson. <laughs> but irrespective, this is a massive failure by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to lose this game to Pittsburgh. They are, this is turning into a really, really ugly year for Tampa. The only consolation is their division is absolute garbage and trash. On trash day, you would take that to the curb three different times because it was <laughs> make your whole house stink, that division, the NFC South. But this Tampa team team is in deep 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 trouble and losing to this bad pittsburgh team that's a problem yeah but i'll also add and you said it sort of as a sort of in passing because we don't we don't do this with tom brady but let's not forget tom brady is 46 years of age and at some point and i know you know brady fans tampa bay fans they're all looking at me like have you learned your lesson about Betting against Tom Brady? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not betting against Tom Brady. What I'm trying to get at is saying the guy is 46 years of age, and at some point there has to be a downturn, and you're gonna see games like this. I agree totally. When you look at the quarterback situation, this is a game they should have had for lunch. The wide receiver is great, but when the quarterback is what he is. Tom, Tom Brady should be able to, to do this and do this well. But at some point, we have to start talking about Tom Brady being the age that he is. Mm. And now that I've said this, they're probably going to go on yep. a run and win the Super Bowl. Yep. And it's all, you know, we're going to point back to this and say, remember when you said this? I, I've had that happen many times on the neutral zone. I'm not afraid of this anymore. But I just think at some point, we really do have to have this conversation. And maybe now's the time, but who knows? I wrote him off in 2014 at uh, 38 years old. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely 46. Maybe we can start running that clock on Tom Brady one more time. Brock, there was a whole bunch of great baseball this weekend. I want to get your thoughts firstly on the 18-inning game on Saturday between the Astros and Seattle that finished one nothing. Brock, I literally went <laughs> to a wedding MC at a reception, danced all night, got home, and the game was still going on. Yeah, I mean, this is this was a game that I, I mean, if you look at the line, you look at the eighteen innings. You know, most innings in a in a MLB playoff game, cool. But I I'm like you. I just kept flipping to this, going, we're still on, we're still on, and it's zero zero. I think that. It's cool that that we had this. I am a bitter uh, Blue Jays fan and always will be. So whenever you see the team that, you know, put out your hometown team, you're kind of like, good, good on them. Uh, but, But I just, at some point, Dave, you look at this and you go, okay, this is two baseball games. And those people will say, oh, it goes on forever. But man, those fans were 
like living it up for the entire game and I love it. And that's hard to do in a in a in a one nothing game. Yeah. So credit credit Seattle who who really, you know, put it put it behind their team and, and did it. But I think this sets up Seattle really, really well for the uh the Astros upcoming sets up the Astros. Oh, really so, well. Sorry, the Astros. Yes. Um I can't read my own notes. Um <laughs> uh, yeah, it sets up the Astros really, really well. Uh coming into the championship series against either Cleveland or New York, which we'll find out the winner uh, tonight. There isn't much turnaround uh, between the end of, of uh, their game tonight being the New York Yankees and Guardians. Um, I think there's like a day between, but we'll see how that goes. But I think this sets up Houston very, very well for their pitching because they can build this around and say, well, we want you know Verlander as our starter if that that's what they choose, mm-hmm. and they can do that because they've had this extra rep. Yep. Whereas New New York, New York or Cleveland has to go based on order versus rest because there's not going to have the same level of rest as the Astros. Brock, I'm going to have you hold your thoughts on the National League upsets that we had with San Diego and the Philadelphia Phillies advancing. Let's preview that series tomorrow and get your thoughts on the upsets, but let's get to tonight's game between the New York Yankees and Cleveland Guardians. The Game 7 one game elimination here. Looks like we have our starters in place for the game at Yankee Stadium. Looks like we have Aaron Savali going for the Cleveland Guardians. And we have, looks like Jamison Tyon going for the New York Yankees. What are you looking for in this elimination game tonight? I am looking for uh, New York to feed off of uh, this home crowd. I think if you're going to, Give the edge. You've got to give the edge to New York and say, yeah, Tyone is probably going to be, you know, get the edge there. I think if you're the Guardians, I think you got to get on the board first. And I know it's very cliche what I'm saying here, but I think in a hostile environment like New York, I think it's really, really crucial that you get on the board first and really take that crowd up. Because the second you let New York get on the board, that crowd is just going to overtake you and just you know, make it very hard to play. So if you're the Guardians, you want to get on the board first and you want to do the little things the right way. We know what New York can do, mashing the the, the baseball, I almost said football, mashing the baseball um, and, and and doing the right things. But you got to, if you're Cleveland, you got to realize underdogs can sometimes win this situation. And if they do, man, will it ever be good? I, I'm rooting for the Guardians, but I would have to give the edge to the New York Yankees. Cleveland plays some old-school baseball, the Dave Brown brand of baseball. They had six different players around 20 stolen bases this year. They ranked third in the league in total stolen bases, sixth in the league in hits. They were in the bottom of the league in terms of home runs hit. Cleveland is one of these teams that likes to manufacture runs, which is the kind of old-school baseball that I love to watch that the game is typically tip- moved away from. And I do want to make note of Aaron Savali because there's probably a lot of folks Folks who do not really follow Cleveland Guardians baseball, particularly the third or fourth pitcher down their rotation. Aaron Savali, since since August the 8th, has only had one game where he's given up more than four runs in his starts. He typically is averaging about five to six innings worth of work. He's a very good player. A couple of years ago, he was one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. Aaron Savali is a really 
really good pitcher going into this game tonight. And of course, as we've noted a couple times today, because I've said that out loud, he's now going to get lit up in the first inning and that's how these things are going to go. But I would take a sneaky flyer on the guardians tonight, try and offset some of my football losses from the weekend. That's just what I'm feeling today, Brock, but Brock, we got to get out of here. So we'll talk more baseball and hockey and football and basketball and many, many more things with you tomorrow as part of the sports chat. But for now, we wish you adieu. Yes. Have a good day and love chatting sports with you. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the Neutral Zone. Alex Smythe is here with the National Weather Updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's rain off and on with up to 10 millimeters expected and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is 14. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain this morning, but it's clearing up in the afternoon and the high is 17. Over to St. John, New Brunswick, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 16. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well, with 15 being the high. In Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with rain expected by noon and a high of 10. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of showers and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of seven. Over to Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny, but a high of only three. In Regina, Saskatchewan, clouds clearing this morning, making way for some sun and a high of 10. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's beautiful. It's sunny with a high of 25. Red Deer, Alberta, similar, it's sunny as well, but a high of 20. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, clouds rolling in with a chance of rain and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour in a high of 11. Over to Kelowna, BC, it's sunny, hazy, in a high of 18. Finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny, becoming hazy in the morning and into the afternoon, and there is a special air quality statement in effect due to the smoke causing the haze. The high there, 17. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, I've asked this question to you a bunch of times already today. What does it take to make a smartphone more durable? Marco Flalo will address that question. This is now with, T- now with TV. How about now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV? It's not now with TV on DB, but we could do that too. <laughs> Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I want to remind you about the Daily Poll, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today we're asking you, would you buy a smartphone that lasts 10 years? Yes or no? I know I've asked you this before, but how long do you typically keep your phone before making an upgrade? A couple of years until it breaks, until your carrier offers you a free upgrade? As mentioned, that's the daily poll question. Would you buy a smartphone that lasts 10 years? Well, Marco Flalo is here with his thoughts. Double TV or Double Tap TV airs Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. And Mark is one of the co-hosts of that show. Hey, good morning, Mark. 
Morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. So, Mark, let's start here. Just the number 10 years. It yeah. feels a little strange, doesn't it? Just to sort of think about 10 years vis-a-vis technology. Yeah, I mean, and these days it seems so weird because we've been programmed to think that we need to upgrade our phone every one or two years, either by the manufacturers or our carriers. But, you know, think back to the uh, golden era of cell phones when we first had our analog flip phones and all those oh, things. They my, weren't quite my, coming my out sweet, as easily, right? sweet, Motorola Razor. Uh, that one, I mean, how, how often did you upgrade your phone back then? Only when I Warriors? lost it in a mosh pit. Exactly, you see? So... We've been programmed ever since the age of the iPhone and the smartphone that these things need to be upgraded. We've been told this is you know, we've been told over and over. You must get the new one so you have the better features. And we're just unfortunately we we are so susceptible to this suggestion that we believe that it should not be the case. But really, at the end of the day, when it comes to hardware, especially nowadays, this tarp is going to last us quite a while. Look at your laptop. How long do you keep a laptop for? And it's sometimes cheaper than the phone. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'd say laptops, you're looking at easily. If, if it doesn't last five years, you'd think you got ripped off on your laptop. So, Mark, let's sort of use that, that, that dividing line, sort of the invention of the smartphone, the iPhone, and then the phones previous. Has any major tech company ever tried to make a longer-lasting phone, especially in the smartphone era? There's been the age of the modular phone. Um, there were a couple of different projects. Even Google had their own project where they tried to build this modular phone where you can upgrade the components uh, one at a time when you know technology arose. But not really, not the major kind of mainstream Samsung, HTC, Huawei, iPhone world. Because really, at the end of the day, if you build a phone that lasts 10 years, you're not making much money on mm-hmm, that in the, mm-hmm. in, in, in the grand scheme of things, right? We did the math earlier on the show in regards to how often I've replaced my phone. The number is right around two and a half years. Where do you put the over-under in regard to how long most smartphones are made to last? I think that's dead on. I think they're they're made to last. Here's the thing. They're made to last. These things are made to last. But when you put a device out in people's hands that has a battery in it, and we're constantly using it on battery power because if you use that laptop comparison, right? A laptop, yes, you use it on battery, but a lot of the time it's plugged in. Mm-hmm. So the battery is mm-hmm. not constantly going through charge, decharge, charge, decharge. Our phones on a daily basis are on a charger two or three times. That is a lot of toll on a battery, and that is what kills a battery's life. So if you look at a modern-day smartphone, you have the battery issue, which is something you have to contend with, and the technology is just not there to make it last much longer than three or four years or the cycles that they counted for. And then look at the software because the software is built for the hardware that exists today. And when they're developing new software and they're putting it out, they have to legally you know, plan for compatibility with about five to seven years worth of hardware. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, do you want to be worrying about 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 20-year-old hardware? No, you want to be programming stuff to work on today's technology so that you take advantage of it. So it's a combination of almost planned obsolescence, the, you know, the, the word that they throw out there, but also the fact of the matter is we're dealing with components like batteries mm-hmm. that just aren't made to withstand more than a certain number of, of charges and recharges, I, or cycles as they call it. I think you just kind of answered this, Mark, but I want to ask the question in a slightly different way because I because I can understand why the rationale would be from this point of view on the surface level, yeah, I want a phone that lasts 10 years, that's great, man i'm being ripped off by these companies i want a 10-year phone well what compromises are we making as consumers if we were to take say a 10-year plunge 
Well, I mean, the compromise is that your fear of missing out, really, number one, the psychological element of it. You're going to look at other people that are not doing what you're doing and have this fancy new hardware with a bigger screen. You know, 10 years is a really long period of time in terms of hardware evolution. If you look at the iPhone or Samsung phones as examples, maybe over two and a half, three years, there's not a big significant change. But after that, after the five-year mark, they make pretty big strides in the camera technology, the screen size and the screen technology, let alone things like Wi-Fi getting faster, cellular mm -hmm. networks getting mm -hmm. faster. So the, the list of things to make you, you know, want to catch up and want to be with today's technology really does grow. So that fear of missing out really does kind of set in, especially when you're looking around going, wait a second, I'm – I'm using my BlackBerry still, and it shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who wish they still could, Mark, though. There's, there's a vocal crew of BlackBerry folks who want their keyboard back. I know. Uh, Mark, what's more likely to age out faster, software or hardware? Oh, hardware, absolutely. I mean, hardware, absolutely, at the end of the day, just because of, you know, wear and tear. It's a physical mm -hmm. it's physical wear and tear. Software drop doesn't it, have that wear and tear. You drop it, and you scratch listen, it. There are people who are still using pieces of software from 10, 15 years ago because they don't want to buy into the new subscription model of software. And that's where the world has gone. There's very few uh, pieces of software that you can buy off the shelf and say, I own this and I'm going to use this sweet, and get updates sweet for it. Adobe Audition. Oh, gosh, yeah, exactly, 2009 exactly. Adobe Audition. Come back but, to me. And but Microsoft is the same. I mean, when they switched to Word and Excel, all, all that subscription model. And again, their their selling point is there's twofold. There's the selfish part, which is make money, make recurring revenue, which in the grand scheme of things makes the valuation of your company that much stronger at the at the end of the day. But at the other side of the coin is, you know, for the user, you're getting the latest and greatest all the time. You're getting that update. You're getting the bug fixes, the security patches, and all that stuff that you wouldn't necessarily get if you bought it and just installed it, and that's it. You know, so great. He's able to you know use all these fancy new fonts and features because he pays monthly. But I paid, you know, ten years ago I paid a flat rate, and I'm still using it. I'm happy to use it, and you could still share the documents. But you're not getting all the fancy features. Mm -hmm. You're not getting all the artificial intelligence, all the accessibility features that come in with these things now, too. Mm -hmm. Mark, there are smaller tech companies that have tried to make their own durable phones. How did Fairphone go about that? And what do you think of the phone? So the phone is a, it's a really cool concept. Um, it went with the kind of like a, a hybrid model with with in terms of modular and not. So the phone is super repairable and super upgradable. A plastic case easily comes off just like old phones used to when it exposed the battery. Different components aren't glued down and soldered down to the board. So if a new camera came out, you can pop it out and change that camera module. If you needed more storage, you can pop more storage in. The concept is great. The problem at the end of the day is price point in, in euros because it's only available in Europe currently and there's no plans for North American expansion is about 585 euros. So that's almost 750 Canadian, kind of creeping up depending on the dollar. Right, um, depending on what Liz, Tr Liz Truss and the European Central Bank exactly. are up yeah. to yeah. over we'll there. We'll see what it is every single day. Economic it, crashes all over due to wars in Ukraine and whatnot. But it's marketing at the end of the day. It really is marketing. And they're never, no small manufacturers ever going to be able to keep up with the billions and trillions of dollars that the Samsungs and Apples have in their bank. And if anybody believes that marketing doesn't have a role in the way we shop for these things, it, it, it's, 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 so, it's so blatant that that's in our face. Mm -hmm. So while the concept of this is great, and I think the repairability aspect and the durability aspect and the modularity of it is a great, great, great device, 
at the end of the day, are you going to go through the hassles of buying that module, waiting for it to appear, opening your phone and taking the risk of putting it in? A, is it an easy process? Mm-hmm. Is it going to last you? Is the fact that it opens making it less durable? It's definitely not waterproof. It doesn't have all the feet. So there's so many things at play here. I think where they're going for is an incredible feat. And I think it's a really smart move. And I think there is a market for it. They'll never have the market share of any of any of the large ones out there, unfortunately, unless they start mass producing and right. have that backing behind them. So what I'd argue as well is that as soon as you start saying, well, you can upgrade the camera and upgrade the board and upgrade the battery and do this and do that. That doesn't mean you bought a smartphone for 10 years. That means you bought a case for 10 years or 12 years and then continued to pour more money into it. Right. So exactly. it's, it's, it's You're not, just not pouring in the full value every single year. Right. Which, which again, I understand where people would say there's, there's appeal to that, but at a certain point, what's the math? If now you've replaced the screen, the battery, the, this, the, that, the other thing, and you've spent $2,000 on this phone on top of the $700 you spent when you bought it. Well, now you spent $2,700 and that could have been four new smartphones, 2.5 years per phone over 10 years. You should host a tech show. You wanna, you wanna maybe swap roles one day. Uh, you know, one day you can. It can be now with Marco <laughs> Flalo, and we'll then we'll do Double Tap Dave. I like it. Oh, Double Tap double, Dave. Double Tap That's Dave. A, yeah, I like well, that. <laughs> Mark, thank you for this. We appreciate you. My my pleasure, Dave. That is Marco Flalo. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap TV, which you can find on AMI TVs Tuesday at eight PM Eastern time, and you can also download it. Well, not download it. You can stream it on demand at AMI.ca or find it on the AMI-TV app for Apple and Android, but not for the Fairphone. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya and with Nizreen Abdel-Majid and Alex Smythe. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Just before we bring in Ramya, Nazreen, and Alex, I'm going to play some sound to set up what we're talking about. Dolly Parton has received the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy for promoting childhood literacy, funding research into COVID-19 vaccines, and other educational endeavors. Parton says helping kids learn to read through her imagination library is more satisfying than winning any award. Well, I love the feeling of knowing that those little children are going to get a book in the mailbox or in the mail uh, with their little names on it. It's going to make them feel inspired. It's going to make them feel proud. It's going to make them feel like it's theirs and there must be something important about it. Parton says that her father is most proud that she's known as the book lady even more than her musical stardom. Let's bring in Alex Smythe, Nazreen Abdelmajid, and Ramya Amuthan to talk about charitable celebrities and the celebrities who've made contributions charitably that has always stood out for us. So I say good morning to you, Nazreen. Good morning. And good morning to you, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. And Alex, we've already said hi to you, so no need again to go through formalities. Nazreen, who is a celebrity who's made a charitable contribution that always strikes you as just wonderful and has elevated that celebrity in your eyes? The first one I thought of was Angelina Jolie. I mean, her work, tremendous. She's done so many, so much work uh, from uh, working with the United Nations, becoming an ambassador to fi- uh, founding um, the Maddox Jolie Pitt uh, Foundation. She's done so much, like like an, an endless list. So uh, from the longest time, I've always followed her work. 
I'm going to borrow one from the sports world. P.K. Subban, recently retired NHL hockey player, not just the $10 million that he raised to build a wing for the Montreal Children's Hospital, but even after he was traded out of Montreal, within a year of doing that, he goes down to Nashville, and what does he do down there in the American South as a, as a black man? He went and founded an organization that was building local hockey organizations that would have local police and inner-city youth working together on hockey teams to build community policing components in that city. That's the kind of stuff that just screams a leader in the community that goes well beyond just using your money, using your influence in a remarkable way. Ramya, what about you? Who's a celebrity whose charitable contribution has always struck you and elevated them in your eyes? Well, you already know I love Beyonce. I love her uh, vocals and her music and her performance. But I also love the kinds of things that she does locally um, in her community. I, I do think that Beyonce and Jay-Z are a power couple for a lot of reasons. And both of them have given back in many ways. Um, musically as well, you know that Jay-Z has founded a lot of different things for um, younger rappers and for uh, getting uh, youth off the streets and things like that. Um, but Beyonce, what I love is her 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 empowerment for black youth for um black women and for local youth who want to get into community uh, not into community into performance and music and i think that it's kind of very direct to do it that way you know um how many people strive for for making music for wanting to get out there that way and so to be able to give that and then also use that influence in your own music right she uses a lot of like local talent when she goes around the world in uh, places in africa and otherwise local talent to bring into her own artistry um, and so there's lots of different ways that I, I keep in touch with what she does alex smith what about you a celebrity whose uh, charitable contributions and philanthropic work has elevated them in your mind yeah, so this was one that I really started taking notice of a few years ago, and uh, I think the first instance uh, really stood out at the beginning of pandemic. It's uh, Canadian Ryan Reynolds and his wife, Blake Lively. Uh, early on in the pandemic, I believe they donated a million dollars to to help support uh, COVID causes. Uh, they've always done a lot of different work with different charities. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, uh, you know, in, in looking up and digging more into kind of the uh, the... Uh, charity work that he's done he he has a long history of it that you know people may not be aware of especially too you you get the sense of like well this was the guy i remember starting off as van wilder you know in the national lampoon movies now he's he's a bonafide a-lister uh, a hollywood star um but the more and more i read on him the more donations he does he's given um uh donations to indigenous youth in out in bc he's he and his uh, wife uh, match up to a million dollars worth of donations for displaced Ukrainians. Like the 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 list goes on and on, and it it just makes it all the more impressive. It makes me want to like him more. Mm -hmm. I already kind of liked him. I thought he was funny. He was entertaining. He's engaging. But it's like this whole other side of him. It's like okay, this is separate from you know being an entertainer. This is being a good person. This is supporting different communities and different causes. It's it's not just focused in on one area or, or one focus for charity work. He's trying to support in many different areas as he can. I like to push back against the notion that a celebrity or a public figure by their nature of holding that position is 
required to give back to the community and required to be a role model. I, I think that it's unfair that sometimes we put that upon people who may not have the capacity to do so. But Nazreen, what do you make of that expectation that when somebody becomes a celebrity and successful, that they must then give back their money in time for charitable and philanthropic causes? I don't think they must, but uh, as Alex said, I think it gives a I don't know, a very big different image of what you expected from them in the beginning. I mean, when I found out about, I liked Angelina Jolie from before, but when I found out about her work, I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. that's how it mm -hmm. should be. Uh, so it, it does, uh, it does give you an, a very, a bigger image than expected. So, yeah. Ramia, what do you make of that, of that expectation that a celebrity or, or a famous person, a public figure must do this once they've had this level of success? I will say it's something that I battle with, Dave, because it's um, it it feels like they should have the capacity. Like you said, you know, if they're not able to, if they don't have the capacity, then maybe that expectation shouldn't be placed on them as, you know, us, the general public saying, you have the money, do it. Um, but it is something that's hard to, to balance. Like Oprah, for example, she's actually had controversy on some of the things that she's done uh, in philanthropy work. But there's been people who've said and, and messaging around that saying like, well, maybe she could do more because she's so huge. And and that is something that I, I personally battle with, trying not to put those expectations on celebrities. But at the same time, exactly what Nisreen said, um, going back to Alex, what you said, it makes you like that person better, right? There's so many things we can focus on when we see the human side of a celebrity and say, oh gosh, you know, this is awful. This is, you know, stick to your artistry or something like that. But when you give back to the community, it's a part of you that you're, you're sharing with us. Um, you're showing us like passion in Beyonce's examples. You're showing us passion in your music, in your culture, mm -hmm. in uh, wanting to get young people out there to do, to give them opportunities that you had yourself. And that makes me uh, love her for it. I like the word that you used opportunity there because that's not just about finances. It's about creating avenues for people who may not have had yes. the same luck luck or opportunities in life that we had, especially as we consider things like perpetually cutting budgets to public schools and music programs. In the case of Beyonce, mm -hmm. a lot of the work she did was through the church, but irrespective, right? There are so many musicians who learned their trade through school music programs over the years who just don't have that anymore. So it definitely speaks to the way in which we can hand out those opportunities and create those avenues. Alex, where do you stand on the obligation of a celebrity or famous person to give back uh, some to some degree after they've achieved success? I, I think there is, um, I, I agree with what everyone has said. You know, there, it, it's, it's a give and take. It's a bit tough. You, on one hand, you, you want to see it, but it's like you, you can't just force someone, oh, you have money. You have to give it away and you have to give it away to a cause that you know, everyone agrees with. No, they, they've earned the money. They've been given it. They can do with it as they wish. Um, so I I think for me and uh, how I view it is, like, well, you know, you don't have to do anything. But if you do do it, it's going to make you look a lot better. It's going to make people like you even more, as we've been talking about. So the ones who do take those opportunities, do support uh, different causes, do donate and, and uh, lift up different organizations mm -hmm. different areas of need it, it can have a huge impact but there's also the thing to remember too not every celebrity may be contributing may be supporting communities or doing it publicly it, it could be mm -hmm. anonymous mm -hmm. donations you know we these are only the 
donations or supports that we know about publicly. There could be a lot more that's happening behind the scenes. Or, some, or sometimes their intentions are nefarious, right? But anybody who, exactly. who anybody who followed the work of surviving R. Kelly, the way that he co-opted the local church through his philanthropic work to basically mm-hmm. groom sexual assault victims. So some celebrities might on the surface appear to be doing things in good faith and instead it's completely and totally nefarious. So there's a lot of ways that pendulum can swing. Nazreen, this is where we say goodbye to you. Have a great day. You too. Alex, we also say goodbye to you here as well. Have a wonderful day, but I'll be talking to you in about 20 minutes off the air. Sounds good. Take care. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet. I get you for at least one more minute because you're going to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time. All right. So we're talking to Michelle Tocher and she wrote the departure train. You probably uh, probably been hearing um, the promos all over AMI audio if you're a regular listener. But this is an audio drama about a woman who dies and boards a train in the afterlife. And there's a lot going on in this one. It's going to be airing on AMI audio at the end of the month. So we're going to talk to Michelle about the work, her work on this production. Uh, we're also talking to Brenda McPhail, or at least she'll be talking to Daniel McLaughlin on Know Your Rights. She's the director of the Privacy Technology and surveillance program for the civil uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. There's so much going on when it comes to facial recognition technology, and they want to talk about the oh, concerns yeah. of it, the oh, use boy. and misuse of it. Exactly. Um, also, Google and Microsoft had some huge events at the start of the month, so we're going to talk more about that with Michael Babcock on our Tech Talk. No shortage of Tech Talk here on the mighty airwaves of AMI. Ramya, you have a great day, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good, Dave. That is Ramya Amuthan, and I am apparently losing my voice. (laughs) She's the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, after I've cleared my throat, Calgary is receiving some federal funding for inclusive infrastructure upgrades. Jim Crisco has the numbers on that one. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's say hello to Jim Crisco. He's AMI's content development specialist for Western Canada. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. Jim, you've got lots of cool stories for us today. Let's start with a personal story in Ardry, where a young girl with a genetic disorder is going to get to experience the train trip of a lifetime earlier this month. So tell me about this trip and who got to take it. Yes, this is a really cool, uh, cool story. It's from the, the young uh, lady's name, young girl's name is Emmy, and she's from Airdrie, Alberta, which is just about maybe 20 minutes outside of Calgary. And what they did was uh, there was an organization that um, that set up uh, a trip for a bunch of children who have uh, different challenges, and it's on the um, the Rocky Mountaineer train, oh, which is yes. Oh, it's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, our own John Melville uh, did that trip just this summer, I believe, uh, starting all the way in Ontario and went through uh, the Rockies. But oh, this one I was starting. He, I thought he. I thought he did the Via Rail trip. Oh, maybe he did. Sorry, maybe it wasn't the uh, Mountaineer, but it was. A, it was the trip through the. Rockies, yeah, there's there's two. Uh, there's, there's there's one. There's one that Via Rail does, and there's one that happens between Vancouver and Banff. Banff. Yes. The, yes. This is the yeah, one. Then. Whereas the, the Via Rail the, one goes through Jasper. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for correcting me. I should know this. I'm I'm, not a very good Albertan. Look at this. I'm coming for your gig, Jim. We're going to trade jobs. You're (laughs) going to become the host of this show, and I'm going to become the content development specialist. 
I, I can't have double tap Dave doing my job. <laughs> I'm just taking all the jobs at AMI. No, okay, sorry, Jim. I don't mean, you know, this is a really nice story. I don't mean to be uh, be snarky about it. So, yeah, t- tell me more about what Emmy got to experience here with this trip. What she, what happened was they uh, they brought in a bunch of kids uh, from and families from all over Canada. They started in Banff. They had a nice uh, a nice hotel in Banff to stay the night. Then they went on to this trip, which was Banff uh, overnight, I believe, in Kamloops, and then on to Vancouver. And it is really, really a, a beautiful trip. Like it is, it is. People come from all over the world to do this mm-hmm. trip, mm-hmm. and uh, and they they gave these. Uh, these uh, young young people and their families, their own car. They got a chance to make friends, which was really cool. Emmy loved working with the cabin crew. She was doing a lot of work for them to the point that they made her an honorary member Aww. of their team, and they gave her a Swarovski Swarovski uh, crystal as a as a thank you. Uh, so it was just a beautiful, as one of the the, the moms put it. It was a, a a trip where the trip was beautiful, but the memories they take from it and the friendships are going to last a lifetime. Yeah, the Rocky Mountaineer is a real first-class experience. It's one that I'd love to try one day. I've done the Via Rail, really, really enjoyed it, but I would love to do this Rocky Mountaineer as well. I've watched a couple of videos about it. It seems spectacular. Jim, let's just take a second to shout out the organization that made this possible. Uh, the organization is the Starlight Children's Foundation. Uh, which is a nonprofit that's that started in the U.S. and now they're in Canada. Uh, they deal with, I think it's about thirty thousand kids a month, uh, doing various um, work with uh, with uh, children, and and they do fantastic work. Uh, big shout out to them. Mm-hmm, absolutely, Jim. Let's head over to Calgary, where the government of Canada has announced investments in inclusive and accessible infrastructure. So, how much money are we talking about? In total, we're looking at about six point six million. That's a that's is, a dollar uh, or two, yeah. It is. It's a nice a nice uh, amount for sure. And what I like about it too is it's not you know five million into one project and then a couple of other projects on the side. They actually split up the money. It starts at I think the lowest uh, you know the, the the least amount of money in a project was twenty thousand, and then it goes up to maybe seven hundred and fifty thousand. But it allowed them to do a number of projects, and uh, and I think it's going to be a real big benefit to Calgary. What are some of the projects that are being funded here? Uh, the, some some examples are um, they're upgrading Stephen Avenue, uh, which is a pedestrian avenue, for the downtown experience. Uh, so there, there'll be an update there. Uh, revitalizing the contemporary Ca- Calgary Community Auditorium to monetize, uh, modernize, sorry, and improve accessible uh, accessibility of the space. So that's really really good. They're building an all-weather multi-purpose building. Not sure what this is going to look like. Focused on inclusion of persons with special needs. Uh, and then an Indigenous Elders uh, Community Center with ceremonial and natural spaces, which would be really super cool. And est- establishing a cycling pathway to connect Montgomery from Bones Road to the Bow River Regional Pathway Network. So these are just some examples. Mm-hmm. And then there's, like I said, many examples that are, you know, a community garden uh, being improved with pathways and accessibility. Uh, so it's it's really going to benefit a lot of different regions of the city mm-hmm. and a lot of people. Yeah, multifaceted approach there through and through with so many different ways in which they can make community impact. Jim, I'm curious. I know we're probably early days still because the funding was only announced a couple of days ago or within the last couple of weeks, but are, do we have any start dates for any of these projects? Uh, you know what? I I don't know specifically on the start dates, but my, my uh, 
impression is that it's going to be very quick. The, the, the program that it's, it's drawing from, the federal program, uh, is a two-year program. So, um, so they're dispersing the money, or the at least they've announced the money now. So I would assume that the projects will start fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Got to get those shovels in the ground. You can't have these uh, projects on paper lasting too long. Well, what is the uh, federal yeah. program that, uh, that, that, that is creating this money, creating this funding? Uh, the federal program is called the Canada Community, Community Revitalization Fund. Uh, and I think that the, the total on that is about $550 million that that they're putting in across the country. So um, they they want, uh, the, like in this case, they're trying to give Calgarians the opportunity to get outdoors, socialize, and participate in recreational activities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's never a bad thing uh, in any community. Jim, you're up there in Edmonton. We've been hearing in the national weather forecast that it continues to be hovering around 20 degrees most days there. Is fall ever going to start in Edmonton, or are you guys just cherishing every last second of sunshine and warm weather? Well, we're absolutely cherishing the warm weather, but I can tell you that the trees in my front yard know that it's fall because uh, <laughs> their leaves are currently <laughs> currently very thick in my in my yard. And I, I always have, first of all, it's a rookie mistake to rake too early in this community because <laughs> we have so many trees, but we, I have hedges that haven't dropped their leaves yet, so I'm, I'm waiting for that. There you go. That's the spirit, Jim. I like that. Getting a little bit of a late summer surge there in Edmonton. Jim, all the best to you. Thank you for bringing these stories. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Dave. Take care. That's Jim Crisco, a content development specialist for AMI. I'm clearly about to lose my voice, so now's a great time for the show to wrap up. Turns out uh, singing at a wedding all weekend and screaming the lyrics to shout. Not great for your vocal cords. So uh, I'll rest those up and be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but you better not forget to have some fun. And by the way, congratulations, Andrika. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.